Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the You Shine the Loop podcast. I'm your host, Nadia Osman, and I'm so excited to kickstart this year with a phenomenal episode about, you guessed it, elections. Midterms are just around the corner. So in this episode, we wanted to tackle some big questions about voting. How does the state protect its voters? How do we, as voters, navigate this process? And last but not least, how do we as a collective society engage communities in the protection of democracy? Personally, I've always been curious about how election officials count ballots. Where does my ballot go once I send it off to the election commission of my state? Turns out the process to count a ballot is actually quite complex, so I want to break it down for you guys. Firstly, there are different ways each type of ballot gets processed. If you're voting in person, many polling locations are increasingly using an electronic voting machine that saves the voting results on a memory device within the machine. For backup purposes, the machine generates a physical copy of the votes. Other polling locations may just use paper ballots. In these cases, the ballots are put through a scanner and then placed into secure boxes. If you're voting by mail, the process is very similar, but the high level of detail that's placed on the verification of each ballot is immense. Ultimately, the collective information from each of these three ways of voting is transported to a central election center. Here, the votes are canvassed to check for any errors in counting by manually tabulating the votes and then cross-checking the total numbers with those of the voting machine. The certification of the election results occurs once this process is completed, usually by the local board of elections or the secretary of state. Elections are first certified at the local level, and then, for the state and federal level races, they are certified at the state level. So, all this is to say that the ballot counting process is certainly not easy. It requires many dedicated, non-biased individuals to certify each step of the process. It's no wonder that our guest today has been busy in the weeks leading up to the election. Alejandra Pollack is the CEO of the New York Democratic Lawyers Council, which helps to protect voters' rights in the state of New York. She will discuss the ways her organization has fought to protect voters in the upcoming challenges of this election. Just as a reminder, You Shine the Loop does not support any political party. We hope you enjoy. Alejandra, thank you so much for joining us and being here with me today. Thank you for having me and thanks for all you do. Yeah, so I guess to start off, can you first explain what the New York Democratic Lawyers Council is and because we are a civics organization, kind of how it interacts with the government, maybe at like the local levels, because that's what you do a lot of, but any other federal and state levels as well? Sure, absolutely. Um, So technically speaking, uh, the NYDLC, which is the New York Democratic Lawyers Council, is the voter protection arm of the New York State Democratic Committee. And uh, we are a coalition, really, of attorneys and non-attorneys. So yes, we are the Democratic Lawyers Council, but we're not uh, made up entirely of lawyers. We have a lot of non-attorney voting rights advocates and activists. And it's really a coalition of anyone that's committed to, you know, ensuring free and fair elections um, and the protection of our democratic institutions and the right, like the fundamental right to vote. Um, And we do that in a number of ways. Um, We have a a number of committees um, within our organization. 
first our Legislative Affairs Committee, um, which drafts voting rights legislation and advocates um, for that legislation. Um, we also um, advocate against, you know, suppressive laws as well um, at the local state level. Um, and then through our voter protection program. So, you know, we're, we're about 11 days away from the election and our organization organizes um, election monitoring efforts statewide. Um, so as the voter protection arm of the New York State Democratic Committee, I coordinate with the Democratic National Committee at the national level um, to ensure a robust uh, election protection effort in our state uh, using, you know, the resources and tools uh, that the Democratic National Committee uh, provides to battleground states and expansion uh, states across the country. For those who don't know, the Democratic National Committee is the governing body of the Democratic Party. Its role is to coordinate the party strategy and support candidates across all ballots at all levels of government. Its counterpart is the Republican National Committee. Great. Yeah. And so I was wondering if you could go a little bit more in depth about what voter protection actually looks like, because um, I think that that might be a confusing term for some people. Sure. So typically when folks think about voter protection, they think about it in the context of the trends that we've been seeing across the country in the last four years, um, where we've just been seeing an increased level of suppression of voters and of, you know, undermining the integrity of our elections nationally. Um, but voter protection, yes, it means, you know, protecting voters from suppression and, you know, preserving our democratic institutions, but it also means just educating voters. Um, and that's something that you do year round. Um, that doesn't have to be limited to, an important election like a midterm elections or a presidential elections, which is why our organization advocates for voter year round voter protection and the establishment of infrastructure that meets voters where they are and really speaks to them um, and provides them accurate and up to date information about how and where to cast their vote um, so that it ultimately counts. And that might sound like a straightforward task, but it really isn't. Um, voting voting laws um, can often be complex, um, and sometimes finding accurate information in the right place is really difficult for some voters, especially if they're older voters or voters who do not read or speak English. Um, so it takes a, a huge amount of coordination at the state and really local level um, to ensure that voters have that information. I'm really proud to have launched through NYDLC um, a statewide voter helpline in New York, which is something that I think all states should offer. Fun fact, while there isn't an Illinois voter helpline, there is a national one called 866-R-VOTE, which is 866-687-8683. For any questions about the voting laws in your state, um, we established this helpline in June, just in time for the June primary elections in New York. Um, and it's a helpline in which, you know, the volunteers that staff it are equipped with 
all of the information um, that may have changed since voters last turned out to vote that could be impacting them, um, you know, how redistricting might have impacted them, and just being a helpful hand to hold as they navigate what is often a confusing elections landscape. And I think that it's something that everyone should do. Um, and again, like you don't have to be an attorney to do that kind of work. You just really have to be someone committed to protecting voters and being an advocate for voters and help just helping voters. Um, so that's kind of one element of voter protection. And then of course, in the lead up to the election and on election day, we want to ensure that all election officials are following election laws. Um, in New York, and I can really just speak to, to New York um, because that's where my head has been um, in the past year and that's where my focus is. Um, in New York, you know, there's a real shortage of election inspectors. And in New York, election inspectors are poll workers, right? So they are the bipartisan um, folks, you know, at poll sites that administer the election for voters, check them in, hand them their ballot, and resolve issues for voters. Um, it's a real problem um, because we're having a lot of problem across the state recruiting, you know, people who really care about ensuring that the election they're administrating is at the end of the day, like done well and correctly and yeah. accurately and not you know, just for the paycheck. Um, so what voter protectors, quote unquote, are there to do is to like observe the voting process unfold and just ensure that the poll workers and the chair and the site coordinators are doing their part Part to ensure that the election is administered fairly smoothly, you know, without any intimidation, and that the process is transparent. Um, so I hope that answers your question. Happy to go a little bit deeper if, if you'd like. Yeah, so I'm intrigued on the election inspector shortage. Has that always been a case? Or is that more recent phenomenon? You know, I'm not sure whether that's always been the case. I've been doing this work since 2020, and that was absolutely mm. the case in 2020. But in 2020, we were impacted by COVID-19. Um, right. So that that also, that was a huge impact in, in the 2020 presidential election because poll uh, workers tend to be older in age. Um, mm. So they tend to be, I think, on average, like 65 or 70 years of age. Um, and so nationally, we were seeing, you know, a shortage of poll workers because they were the most vulnerable and susceptible mm. to COVID-19. Um, and so we saw a push, you know, to recruit more uh, like younger poll workers. And I'm a strong advocate for getting young people involved in this work. Yeah. So, you know, if there's one call to action uh, from this podcast or from anything that we do. It's like, if you are a young person who cares about this, seriously consider signing up to be a poll worker. It's often a paid position. Um, and, you know, it's it's really that that is the front line of democracy, right? You have the authority at the poll site to truly resolve issues. You know, that's what I tell my, my voter protectors, my 
poll observers. It's, you know, if you really want to make a difference, be a poll worker because you're actually, and if you really care about ensuring that voters have a good experience and that their fundamental right to vote is protected, you have much more authority to do that if you are a worker at the, at the poll site. Um, but this year, I think it's a, it's a number of, of issues that are impacting a shortage. I think folks are burnt out to be, to be, to be honest, um, especially yeah. in New York, where we had three elections this year because of redistricting, right. it bifurcated our primaries to two. Um, so there's a lot of burnout. And then finally, I think, um, you know, again, we just need to get the word out about the importance of this work when we're recruiting. And I'd, if, you know, if I do this for another cycle, maybe in 2024, I think that would be something that our organization focuses on, um, would be on working maybe with colleges or universities, um, young democratic groups or just young um, committees to ensure that we are um, getting the word out about the importance of getting involved in election protection, whether it's a poll worker or a poll observer, because we just need young, energetic people doing yeah. this. Yeah, I totally agree. And that was something that I was going to ask, because um, I definitely feel like at colleges is where you get the most um, energy, I think, like especially here at Chicago, like people have a lot of energy to go out and vote um, and we have a voting um organization who gets people like registered and such. I think that having those programs in place would be actually really helpful. And even just to make people aware, because I, for some reason, I don't think it ever crossed my mind that I could be a poll worker. I don't know that that wasn't. And you're so right that I think that it's mainly like the older generations that I've pictured. So, yeah, I mean, and every poll site that I've ever worked um, the poll workers have been, you know, probably like on average, like 76, 75 yeah. years of age. And it's wonderful. I mean, they've been doing this for a really long time and they know their stuff. And they also are great about just kind of having a uh, no BS kind of approach to, mm. um, you know, any kind of challenges to the work that they do. Um, but they're also kind of set in their ways too. So they're not necessarily like adaptable um, or really, you know, they're just kind of like tired by the time like 9 p.m. rolls around, you know? And, you know, you want people that are really excited about watching democracy unfold at the poll site doing this work, I think. And so that's the goal. And, uh, and yeah, you're right about, I mean, there's a lot of work going on in my state um, with young people getting involved in just as you say, like voter registration drives and voter education work. Um, so I'd really like to see us build on that again. Like, I just think the most important thing is just making sure that we're not trying to reinvent the wheel for every election. Like, let's do our part to ensure and advocate for like year round infrastructure that's sustainable, that outlasts each of us once we're gone. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think it's just so critical because in New York, I, I'm just, it, it's really, especially when you have a, a, a year like this that was really chaotic, if you don't have that infrastructure in place, then you're really just scrambling and grasping at straws. And it's, it's almost impossible to coordinate um, those efforts. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So in 2020, 
um, I remember poll workers kind of experiencing a lot of harassment. Have you witnessed that in New York in this cycle at all? So I couldn't say specifically if a poll worker has experienced harassment Mm -hmm. since 2020, but I do know that our election officials um, in New York have been dealing with um, an unprecedented level of um, attacks on how on the integrity of the election that they administered in New York on the results of the election. There are some groups that have challenged, you know, the 2020 um, certification of the votes in, in New York and of the election in New York. Um, and that's becoming a much more well-funded and well-coordinated effort with every day with even more recruits joining. Um, and recently, just in the past few months, our this group and others coordinated an effort to like inundate and really flood our boards of elections with FOIL requests, so like Freedom of Information oh. requests. Um, to try, well, to gather data to, um, you know, support their really baseless claims. Um, And what that does is it creates an environment within our boards of elections who are already under-resourced, really, um, where they have to now, like, deal with this flood of requests and can't truly concentrate on educating their voters on making sure that their poll sites are well-staffed by people that care uh, and are well-trained. So, you know, it it impacts our elections Um, and it may not be harassing directly, but it it definitely has an impact of burning out our election officials who should really be like in tip-top shape, you know, by the time election rolls around. Mm Mm-hmm. And are those election officials, are they nonpartisan or do they have certain, like, is it a certain demographic that is? um, No, unfortunately, um, our elections are partisan. (laughs) I Mm. say unfortunately because, you know, that just creates a lot of complexities um, that you have to navigate. Um, So you have kind of a Republican commissioner and a Democratic commissioner and you have Republican poll workers and Democratic poll workers. Oh, and there, okay. there has to be a balance of each. Um, but the groups that are, uh, you know, flooding the election are partisan, you know, Republican GOP groups. Hmm. Okay, interesting. I Yeah, I for some reason, I'd always thought that it was just kind of nonpartisan people working. Yeah. Wouldn't and- that be nice? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but so you mentioned the voter helpline earlier. I was kind of wondering what you found people's biggest concerns and questions are um, this cycle. Sure. Um, absentee voting, I think by far uh, is the the biggest. As we get closer to the election, we've been getting a lot of calls about um, uh, updating registration and what that means past the deadline. So you've had some some folks that maybe moved, right, and didn't update their registration. And so it's past the the update deadline. So they want to know whether they can vote. And what we our job is, is to say, you know, if you are a registered voter in New York um, and you've lived at your current address for 30 days, 
your registration follows you. Like, don't let anybody tell you that you can't vote. You can go to the mm. poll site for your new address, vote an affidavit ballot or a provisional ballot, as it's called in other places. An affidavit ballot is just a regular ballot that is used in a situation such as the one Alejandra is describing, where you are eligible to vote but cannot submit a regular ballot. Election officials will later check if you are actually registered to vote and will submit or discard your ballot accordingly. Remember, it is always your right to be able to vote on a paper affidavit ballot. And your vote will count. Um, and you, that affidavit ballot will serve to update, you know, your registration. So again, like so voters just don't know that. Like they would never know that. And there's yeah. like no, honestly, there's no website or anything that will clearly provide that information to them. You kind of have to talk to them and tell them that over the phone, literally. Mm-hmm. Um and then uh, we have a lot of questions about absentee voting. Um, so, and that's that's really a result of COVID-19. Um, so again, you have a lot of elderly voters, a lot of disabled voters that are calling the helpline. Um, and there are a number of ways to vote in New York. So we just provide advice about the easiest way to do that. And that's often not clear in other places, like even boards of elections websites. They don't really translate that information into mm-hmm. like clear, su- succinct, easy to understand, um, uh, you know, formatting. So that's what our helpline does. And then, of course, as we get closer, we're like confirming poll sites. And that's that's particularly important in this election year because of redistricting. A lot of folks might have been redistricting. Their poll site might have changed. Districting is the process of changing districts. Think of it like the sections we live in that dictates the political leaders that represent us. These lines change every 10 years, according to the census. And then we also inform voters about like updates to the election law or rules since they last turned out. So, for example, in New York, in 2020, New Yorkers were kind of voting under this rule referred to as last vote counts. Um, And I don't know if you remember in 2020, like I think nationally there was this anxiety about USPS, like if you go back to that summer. There were a lot of shortages and folks were really worried about their ballots getting mailed or delivered. So um, voters essentially, like even if they had been issued an absentee ballot and requested one, they could still show up at the poll site if they changed their mind about voting that absentee ballot and vote in person, like a regular ballot through the scanner. Um, that rule has changed. So if you've already been issued that absentee ballot and you show up at the poll site in person, you're not going to be allowed to vote a regular ballot. You'll have to vote an affidavit ballot in New York. Mm. So again, folks just might not be aware of that. So we train not only our voter protectors in the field to look out for that and advocate for a voter, but also just kind of preempt that um, by providing as much information about the voting process to the caller as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just trying to think if there are any other trends that we've been seeing through the helpline. I think that's pretty much it. Like a lot of folks calling to um, confirm, you know, their candidates, their new districts. Um, mm-hmm. That was a big one in August with our second primary election. I see Isabel kind of smiling there. Um, you know, 
it was kind of really chaos because we had candidates who announced in certain districts based on like the first set of lines and then petitioned in those districts. So like, you know, knocked on doors and said, I'm the candidate that's going to be on your ballot. And then oh, you wow. know, three months later, they just dropped out because the lines were un- unfavorable. And then a new set of candidates ran in those districts. And oh, my gosh, when I say chaos, I mean chaos <laughs> in the sense of the word. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that makes sense. I was going to ask what the biggest challenges your team isn't like had this election cycle, but I guess maybe that kind of answers it. But if if, if there's anything that you are anticipating um, that will happen on election day uh, in terms of challenges. Um, you know, well, we did have, you know, the June and August election kind of inform what we might see in November. Um, we, we received like a few reports, you know, through the helpline and Mind you, you know, in for for primary elections, we don't operate a field program. So we don't have like poll observers during primaries at poll sites. So we were really relying on the reports that we were getting from voters through the helpline about their experience at poll sites. And I think for the most part, the elections were smooth. Um, We did see, um, you know, a few reports of you know, poll workers asking unlawfully for identification or date of birth. Um, And, you know, that is kind of, that is not kind of, it is considered a form of intimidation. You know, you're not in New York, you don't have to show ID. Um, And additionally, you know, we did see election workers accusing voters of committing voter fraud. (laughs) So, Mm. you know, asking questions like, how many poll sites did you visit earlier today? Where did you vote before? Um, and these are not even like this is happening in in areas that have not traditionally been susceptible to this level of suppression yeah. um, or harassment of voters. Like it's happening in like very deep blue areas where like a lot of white voters are turning out, like these are issues that you Mm. tend to see where minority voters are turning out, where there's a high concentration and demographic of, um, you know, people of color or limited English proficiency voters. Um, So it is somewhat alarming to see this um, spreading out um, because it just, to me, signals like a new level of boldness from, from this effort. Um, but in terms of what we're preparing for, really, like my program is focused on preparing for anything because we are in really unprecedented times. And again, it just it doesn't have to be suppression or intimidation. It could just be, you know, there are a lot of changes to the law, a lot of changes to the rule. And we just want to make sure that the election inspectors are you know following those rules correctly um mm-hmm. and that there's always an advocate for the voter present you know across mm-hmm. the state. yeah out of curiosity are there like police officers or law enforcement at the poll sites or is it mainly just kind of like the poll observers um no. doing most of the work no there, and there shouldn't be because that can sometimes lead to uh, feelings of intimidation mm-hmm. um yeah. in new york city um 
sometimes you will see a, a police officer, but he should really, he or she, I should say, should really be, um, you know, not a part of the process or really a central component of it. Mm-hmm. Um, we we usually actually train our volunteers to let us know if they see, you know, law enforcement presence on site. We had some reports of, you know, poll watchers appearing, you know, in their military fatigues and mm-hmm. um, that's very much not allowed. So we tried to just look out for any sort of, you know, attire or anything anything within 100 feet of the pole site that could be considered intimidating. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that your work has mainly been focused on voter protection, but I was just wondering, because the John Lewis Voting Rights Act of New York has recently passed. For your information, the New York John Lewis Voting Rights Act is a bill that was signed into law this past summer that protects voters' rights, particularly voters of color. The bill would expand language assistance for voters, instruct state judges to interpret election laws in a pro-voter way when possible, and make elections more accessible. This act will work to ensure that all voters have an equal opportunity and the right to vote. Has that had any impact on the voter protection and the work that you're currently doing there? Not yet, um, but we hope to see... um you know, a positive impact on our elections very soon and in the near future when the elements of the legislation are, uh, you know, put in place across the state. Um, It really is one of the strongest voting rights bills. And what we can learn, you know, from that process in New York is, you know, since the Supreme Court decision, it's really up to the states now. You know, it's it's up Mm. to the states to enact strong and robust legislation that um, that protects the fundamental right to vote. And that, that is a fundamental right. Um, and so, you know, we hope that in passing this important legislation, you know, not only are we hopefully living up to the great John Lewis's le- legacy, but that other states will, will follow suit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And kind of, I guess, off of that, what do you think New York can teach other states about voting rights and how could it be um, a leader for others? You know, I I think that it can be a leader. Well, let me first put this into context. OK, New York was New York is often considered like this blue beacon of hope. And that's just I love New York. I'm not hating on New York. I live here. New Yorker. Um, but before we passed this legislation, like New York had some of the most suppressive laws in the country, like voter voting rights laws in the country. Um, Mm. We were like almost in last place. And we still are in some ways, like states like Georgia and others have come way farther than New York has in introducing, you know, strong uh, voting rights legislation and enacting legislation. Um, But the New York Voting Rights Act really propelled New York from last to first. And I think what other states can learn from this is that it takes a really broad coalition behind these legislations to get them. It's really hard to get mm-hmm. legislation passed. And mm-hmm. this piece of legislation took, I think, almost a decade, um, mm-hmm. took a really long time. Wow. 
Um, so you have to have a well-coordinated and um, well, a well-coordinated coalition behind you. Um, and it, and it should be, you know, supported by data and a strong analysis of how ultimately legislation is going to positively impact voters or make and or make the administration of the election easier and fairer. Um, and you have to do that by, you know, through the support of multiple stakeholders, right? So you you can't just look at it through the context of the voter. You also have to look at it through the lens of the commissioners and those that are responsible for putting the election in place. So everybody has to have kind of some, some sort of input. Um, and that process can take a really long time. But as we saw in New York at the end of the day, it's so worth it um, because yeah. we're, we are going to start to see you know, a big impact across the state over the course of the next few years and, and cycles. Um, but it doesn't, you know, that has to be supported with voter education, right? At the same time, we have to get the word out to voters about their rights, mm. you know, and what, what they're, and, and ensure that they can advocate for themselves, because that's often, you know, the problem is that they just feel like there's no one there to inform them or hold their hand through this, this process. And so they feel like, like, oh, well, I'm just not gonna vote, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. so again, it has to be coupled with real advocacy um, at the local level. And that's where young people come in again. Um, and then there was one thing that I wanted to say, but I lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> that's so understandable. And um, I just wanted to say thank you so much um, for coming on the podcast and just really motivating us and I think everybody else who would listen to this um, conversation on getting out there and like really trying to make an effort in democracy because it is very important. Um, but thank you for being on and um, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Nadia. And like one last thing that I wanted to say to like leave folks with is I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm just, really someone who was just passionate about ensuring people could vote <laughs> and just like concerned about the headlines, you know, and just decided to just get involved and found this group. And then kind of two years later, totally randomly became executive director of it. And I feel like a total mm -hmm. imposter and I have huge shoes to fill. But my, my point is that this can sometimes feel like really an, an intimidating landscape to enter. And I just want folks to feel like, you know, get over that hump because once you're in it, you can make a real difference. Mm. And it doesn't really like pick, pick what you care about. Is it mm. ensuring that young people are registered, you know, by the time they turn 18, you know, maybe focusing on pre-registration or registering, um, new voters, or maybe it's election protection or being a poll worker. Um, maybe it's running for office. Um, it could be a number of things, but just please don't let the intimidation factor deter you from getting more deeply involved um, because we could use every single one of you, you know, wherever it is that you are. Um, you are an important part of, of this work. And, um, you know, I just encourage everybody to do their part. I hope you all enjoyed listening to that conversation. 
Although Alejandro's work is focused within New York, Chicago is also doing some neat work with election protection. In fact, there's an equivalent to the NYDLC called the Chicago Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. They do much of the same work, including training poll workers and educating voters about their information. As Alejandro stated, young people are needed in our political apparatus now more than ever. If you'd like to learn more about working at a polling station on election day, visit the link in our description. The Cook County Clerk's Office has positions open to college students for election judges and polling place technicians, both of which you will receive training for. This is a unique experience. You would be performing a vital function of democracy. Now is the time to take action and get motivated. Happy midterms, and for you shy in the loop, I'm Nadia Osman. See you all in December.